Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. We are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 today. So if you would turn there. In the Pew Bible, it's page 970. And while you're turning there, I want to thank the elders for allowing me to come and share with you this morning. Um, I've been a member of Redeemer for four or five years now, and so I'm grateful to get to come back. I consider this my home church. Even though I didn't grow up in Fort Worth and grow up here, I consider this my home church, and so I'm grateful to get to come and share with you this morning. And so I'm really excited. Well, I say that. I was excited, and then I remembered what happened to Jesus when he went to his hometown, and I got a little nervous. So I trust that you won't do the same thing to me. 2 Corinthians, and today we're going to look at verses... 7 through 10. And if you would stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good and loving God and that you have revealed yourself to us in your word that we can know who you are and we can know who we are to be in light of that. Lord, thank you that even in our weaknesses, your grace is sufficient. And Lord, as we meet together to have a service with one another, we are all broken and sinful and weak. But we pray that your power would be upon us and that you would use this time to draw us closer to yourself, even in spite of our weaknesses. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So we kind of jump in the middle of chapter 12 here. And in this section of 2 Corinthians, specifically starting in chapter 10, Paul is addressing some issues that have come up in the life of the Corinthians. There are these false teachers who have been coming in, these super apostles, as Paul sarcastically calls them, who have been coming in and they've been boasting in themselves. They've been boasting in their wisdom. They've been boasting in their rhetoric. And not only have they been boasting in themselves, but they've done it at the expense of Paul. So they build themselves up and they talk about how great they are and they talk about how good they can preach and how that good, how wise they are. But they say, oh, that Paul guy, you know, I don't know about him. And they, and they call him weak and they, they speak against him. And Paul defends his apostleship. He defends who he is. And, and he starts to say, well, I've suffered for Christ. I've gone through these things. If I wanted to boast in those things, I could. I would be speaking like a fool, but I could boast in those things. And then in chapter 12, he starts off and he starts talking about visions and revelations that he's seen. He says, I've gone to the third heaven. Well, he says it in third person. I know a man who went to the third heaven. 
And this man heard things that man cannot utter. So at this point, you would expect Paul is about to really just boast in those things. I mean, who else has been to the third heaven? Who else can boast in those sorts of things? So you expect Paul just to really lay down the law here and and stop the madness from these false apostles. But he kind of throws us a curveball. Instead of boasting in those things, he begins to boast in something quite different and actually the opposite. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 7. And in verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. It would be real easy for Paul, or it would be real easy for any of us, had we seen the things that Paul had seen, had we gone through the suffering that he has gone through, had, he seen, had we seen the third heaven, it would be real easy to boast in ourself. And as soon as anybody came to question our spirituality, as soon as anybody came to us to try to say, well, you, you, you have this sin issue or you have that, we would pull out that trump card. Have you seen the third heaven? No? I didn't think so. Stop it. Right? It'd be real easy for us to begin to boast in ourselves and boast in these things. But Paul says, in order to keep me from becoming prideful, in order to keep me from becoming conceited because of these things, the Lord gave me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. So first question on everybody's mind, what is this thorn? Okay? The theories are endless. There are many theories, and some are more credible than others. Some are just outright crazy. But there are many theories as to what the thorn is. A couple of the most prominent ones are... One, that it's a physical suffering that Paul is going through. It's an it's actual thorn in the flesh. It's some kind of vision problem or, or a speech impediment or hearing issues. It's some kind of physical ailment that keeps him from being able to preach with you know, power and boldness as these super apostles are supposedly doing. That's one theory. Another is that it's a spiritual problem. Perhaps some sort of temptation, perhaps some sort of spiritual struggle that Paul has. So they would translate it a thorn against the flesh instead of in the flesh. Another possibility is that this thorn in the flesh for Paul is his opponents. I mean, after all, these people are belittling him. They're going against his apostleship. They're, they're telling the Corinthians to stop listening to Paul and listen to them. And these people perhaps are a thorn in Paul's side. And he's constantly having to battle them. So those are a couple of the most prominent. So which one is it? Well, Scripture doesn't explicitly tell us. Scripture doesn't come out and tell us. And it's not as if the Holy Spirit forgot It's not as if Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, finished the letter to Corinthians, sealed it up, put it on the fox or the bird, that whatever carries the mail in that time, and sends it off and then thinks, oh man, I forgot to tell him what the thorn is. No. It's it's left general. It's left vague. And I think on purpose, because what Paul is going to do, he's going to tell us the Lord's response to him during this time And then in verse 10, he's going to generalize this truth, generalize this this response from the Lord, and apply it in every situation in which we are weak, and in which we face calamities, 
and in which we face persecutions and hardships. He's giving us a truth of the Christian life. He's showing us how God in his sovereign plan has decided that he would interact with us, his creatures. So while for Paul, the specific issue was a thorn, we don't know what exactly it was, but it doesn't matter. All we know is that it was something that hindered Paul. It was something that tormented Paul. It was something that always stayed on Paul's mind, and he was pleading with the Lord to remove it. And it was something that, from a human perspective, should really hinder his ability to minister. And you say, that's not good. What is this thorn? We have many things in our life that seem to hold us back. We have many things, weaknesses, whether they be physical, whether they be spiritual, whatever they may be, there could be many things that seem to hold us back. From a human perspective, should hinder our ministry. So whatever this thorn is, it tormented Paul. It was something that Paul wanted to get rid of. Now, Paul tells us, This thorn was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to harass me. Now, we might be tempted to think that this thorn was given to Paul by Satan. It's a passive verb. It doesn't tell us exactly. It doesn't say, you know, so-and-so gave me the thorn. It says, this thorn was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to harass me. So we might be tempted to think, oh, Satan gave him this thorn. But I think that's a wrong conclusion. And I think the reason why we know that that's not the case is because we also are told the purpose of the thorn. And the purpose of the thorn gives us an indication of who the giver of the thorn is. The very first phrase in verse 7 and the very last phrase in verse 7 tell us the purpose of the thorn. So to keep us from becoming conceited, he says. And then he ends, to keep me from becoming conceited. Is it ever Satan's desire or any messenger of Satan's desire to keep us humble? No, of course not. In fact, the enemy would love nothing more to see you prideful and lifted up and arrogant and boastful in your own ability so that you would not look to Christ and his strength. So we know that if the purpose of the thorn was to keep Paul humble, there's no way that Satan is the ultimate giver of the thorn. While a messenger of Satan is involved, a messenger of Satan is somehow beating Paul, and and the messenger of Satan's desire is to destroy Paul and to hinder his ministry, we know that behind the scenes, God is orchestrating it and working this out for Paul's good and for his glory. God is working this out. He is behind the scenes. And you say, well, how in the world can a messenger of Satan be involved while behind the scenes, God is working things out for his good and his glory. I would point you to the book of Job, something you're probably thinking of already. In the beginning of the book of Job, we see Satan going to God, asking for permission. Okay, keep that in mind. He's asking for permission. Let that be an encouragement to you. He's asking for permission to attack Job. And the Lord give Satan permission, not only that, but he tells him the limits to how far he can attack Job. You can attack him, but only go this far. And then later on, Satan comes back and the Lord says, okay, you can attack him, but this time you can only go this far. So while Satan's desire is to attack Job and to cause him to lose his faith and to test him, 
God is behind the scenes working things out for his good. So that when you get to the end of the book of Job, what I think is one of the most important verses, after, after Job's going through all this suffering, after Job has interacted with the Lord, and the Lord has reminded him of his power and his majesty and how great he is, Job says to the Lord, Before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. The Lord worked it out. Though Satan's desire was to destroy him, the Lord was behind the scenes working it out and growing Job's faith in God. And through the suffering, Job was learning more about the Lord. And I think that's what we see here with Paul's thorn. While directly a messenger of Satan is trying to attack and destroy and kill, ultimately God is working things out to keep Paul humble. What if God didn't do that? You may think, is it loving for God to give Paul a thorn? Is it loving for him to do the same to us? Absolutely it is. If we would affirm that the greatest thing in our life, the greatest treasure is Christ, then anything that would separate from us, us from him, is awful. So if the Lord gives us hardship, if the Lord gives Paul a thorn to keep him humble and to keep Paul's eyes not on his abilities, not on his experiences, but on the great and powerful God, then the thorn is truly a blessing if it leads Paul to trust in Christ. Sometimes God shows his love to us by giving us difficulty. Sometimes God shows his love to us by allowing us to go through struggles and hard times and calamities. Not because he's out to get us. Not because he wants to see bad. Because he wants to see our good. And sometimes we need those things to flee to Christ, to cling to Christ because we begin to trust in ourselves or we begin to put faith in these little idols in our life instead of trusting completely on Him. C.S. Lewis says, we can ignore even our pleasures, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but He shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So sometimes God, in his love, allows pain. Let's keep reading. Let's see what Paul asks in the Lord's response. Verse 8 in the first part of verse 9. Paul says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Now we're going to, as we read this message, we're going to get a lot of hope. Even in the midst of weaknesses and even in the midst of trials, we're going to have a hope in a great and loving God. But, but let, me, let me also give you the reality that even with that hope, that hope is great, but even with that hope, hard times are still hard. The thorn in the flesh still hurts. Difficulties are still difficult. It's still hard. I don't want to give you so much hope that you leave thinking that, oh, I can handle anything and it'll never hurt. No, 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 it will hurt. 
But that's how great the hope is that we have, that even in the midst of that hurt and that pain and that darkness, God is greater and God is in control. So suffering, thorns, they hurt, they're difficult. So much so that Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord three times that, that God would remove it. I'm asking the God, please take this thorn away from me. If you would just take this thorn away, I could go do this and this and this for you. If you would just take this out of my life, I could go and serve you in a great way. Take this thorn from me, please, Lord. And we would expect a guy like Paul, who we would also probably say is the greatest missionary ever, who under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote a large portion of our New Testament, We'd expect if there's any man of faith, if there's anybody who can pray a prayer of faith and and see results, it would be Paul. And we'd expect that Paul would pray this prayer and he would pray for the thorn to be removed and God would remove it. But that's not what we see. The Lord lovingly and kindly says, no, I will not remove the thorn, but my grace is sufficient you will be able to bear it by my grace. This flies in the face of any type of prosperity or health and wealth teaching that you may hear. And even though we know that that theology is wrong, I think there's a place in our heart that we want to believe it. And I think there's something in our heart where we want to believe, in the midst of trial especially, we want to believe, if I just pray, God will remove this. And sometimes God does. And when He does, we rejoice and we praise Him. But sometimes, for a reason that we may not understand, God doesn't take it away. God doesn't remove the thorn. And in those moments, can we trust that He is still good and that He is still loving and that He has a reason for allowing this thorn in your life. Do we have that kind of faith in God? Because that's when our faith is put to the test. You're never promised to have all the difficult times removed. In fact, Christ says, if you follow me, you will suffer persecutions. You will go through hardships. It's going to be difficult. I will take some away, but some I will not. And I'm working it out for your good and for my glory. Paul prayed three times and the Lord lovingly said no. I can't help but to think about someone else in Scripture who in a very intense moment of difficulty pleaded with the Lord three times, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. And we know that Christ prayed that prayer in the garden, and we know that Christ drank from that cup. He drank from that cup. The cup was not removed. He drank from the cup. He went to the cross. He bore the wrath of God that you and I have stirred up. And then we know He defeated it through the resurrection. And we too will pray, and sometimes God will not remove the difficulty. The reason he gives is, my grace is sufficient, my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
Paul's prayer was answered. It's not as if Paul's prayer wasn't answered. God answered his prayer, but just not the way Paul asked for it. Paul wanted deliverance from affliction, and God gave him the necessary grace to bear it. Calvin says that when God does not gratify or comply with our wishes, we must be satisfied with his grace. We must be satisfied with his grace. The Lord says, I'll get you through it. I'll get you through it. My strength is made, power, made perfect in weakness. What does that mean? Does God's power lack anything? Does God need his power perfected as if it's insufficient? No, we know that's not true. We know that God's power is always perfect. What he's showing here, the idea that, that he's, what he's saying here is that the strength of Christ in a moment in which we are weak, in a moment which from a human perspective, there's no way out, there's, there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves. In those moments, Christ's power is put on display in such an explicit way that even us sinful and prideful and arrogant people can look at it and say, that was God, not me. That was, that was, there's no way I could have ever got through that. That was the work of God. Because we're tempted to give ourselves credit and give ourselves glory, right? Even though we don't want to, even though we try to fight against it, we're tempted to give humanity or ourselves the glory. So take, for example, the story of Gideon. If Gideon were to take, and we don't know the exact number, but people say over 100,000 Mennonites he defeated. So let's say 100,000 for simplicity's sake. If Gideon were to defeat the Midian army of 100,000 people, and he had... 100,000 people, then ultimately in the back of our mind, we would know, okay, God granted them the victory, right? We would know that. But there might be a part of us in our heart that might say, well, they had 100,000 people too. Or Gideon, he had a really good plan. Israelites are really good fighters. And there might be a temptation to give ourselves the glory or give the Israelites or give Gideon glory. But God likes to put his power on display in such a way that he says, no, 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 Gideon, you got too many people. Let's, let's get it down to 300 and we'll get this 300 to defeat this large army and nobody gets the glory except for God. Nobody looks at that and thinks, well, Gideon, he did a good job. No, 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 no. Humanly speaking, it's impossible for 300 people to defeat 100,000. But God's power is made very explicit and it's put on display so that we would not boast in ourselves, but boast in Him. He gets all the glory. Consider all the great stories that we have in Scripture. I mean, consider the Israelites at the Red Sea all, all the promises of God to Abraham, all the promises that the seed would come from this nation depend on this moment in which they are trapped on one hand between the Red Sea and behind them the Egyptian army is coming to attack them and enslave them. How in the world will they get out? They can't. That's the point. They can't get out of that situation. There's no way they can survive. But in that moment of weakness, you see the power of God explicit and shown to us so that even our sinful hearts cannot give ourselves any credit. God splits the sea and the Israelites make it out. What a display of God's power. What about David and Goliath? 
Again, the Israelites' existence depends on this one moment in which they are going against this army and this giant who is, who is just absolutely huge is defying the armies of God. What's the Lord going to do? Perhaps send out a valiant warrior that's skilled with the sword? No. He sends a skinny little shepherd boy so that when we read the story, our thought should not be, man, David is great with a slingshot. It should be, no, God is powerful and he is mighty to save. One of my favorites is the story of the defeat of Jericho. Jericho was a fortified city and the Israelites were going to attack this city. And this was in the day before they had satellite-guided missiles, so they couldn't just launch a bomb in there and attack them. So if they had a fortified wall, you had to get through the wall somehow. You had to climb it. You had to destroy it. You had to pay somebody to open the gates for you. You had to get through the wall. And this wall was fortified. So the Lord gives Joshua the plan. And Joshua gathers Israel together says, Here's what we're going to do, okay? We're going to march around the wall on the first day. And then the second day, we're going to do the same thing. In fact, we're going to do that for seven days. On the seventh day, hear me out. On the seventh day, we're going to march around it seven times. And then we're going to blow the trumpets. And if you're sitting there, you're probably like, and then, and then we attack. And then the missile comes. What, what happens? No, 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 no. We blow the trumpets and the wall is going to fall. All right, Joshua's falling off his rocker. Let's get somebody else in there. Right? Humanly speaking, that plan should never work, right? Humanly speaking, that's, that's not a good plan. But in that moment when humans are absolutely weak, God displays his power in a way that we can't give anybody credit except for God. Nobody reads that story and thinks, Joshua had a really good plan. Nobody reads that story and thinks, man, those Israelites can really blow those trumpets. Right? You read that story, and you're like, wow, God is powerful. God is mighty to save his people. And that's the idea that his power is made perfect in weakness. It is put on display. It is made very explicit so that we have no excuse. And even our, our inclination to give ourselves glory and credit is completely wiped away. And the only glory goes to God. 1 Corinthians 27-29 through 29 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Isaiah 42 tells us, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other God is not interested in sharing the glory with you. He deserves all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. So in his sovereign plan, he has appointed the means by which he would work in this world, and that is that he would resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. 
and that he would work through the weak so that nobody is tempted to say, oh, that was that brother or that sister that did that. No, 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 that was God that did that. He gets the glory. He gets the praise. Do you trust in God? Is your faith in God so great that even in your weakness, you say, man, what an opportunity for God to work. Even when you are weak, you say, all right, Lord, show me what to do and I'll follow you. We're tempted to be prideful. And I think there's a a, a large spectrum of where we can be. We can be extremely prideful and arrogant and boast in ourselves and trust in even our spiritual gifts, things that are given to us by God. We can depend on those and depend on ourselves instead of depending on God. And so we, we are prideful and we boast. That's a lack of faith in God. You're putting your faith in yourself, not in God. But there's also, I think, another end of the spectrum in which sometimes we recognize our weakness in a great way. We we really see, I truly am weak in this situation. God is going to have to work. But we let that weakness paralyze us. And that weakness, instead of putting our faith in God and stepping out, following Him, we let it paralyze us and we sit back and do absolutely nothing. That, too, is lack of faith in God. It's disobedience to Him. And you know what? I think this passage... It's a reminder to us that we are to always recognize our weakness. Even in situations in which we feel strong, even in situations where we're using our gifts, things that perhaps we're good at, things that perhaps God has given us talent and gifts and abilities, even in those situations, we must recognize that we are truly weak. The Lord may give you the spiritual gifts of teaching, but you can put together the best sermon or the best Sunday school lesson or the best care group lesson. You can put together the best lesson. And if God doesn't work, it's all for naught. You can practice your gifts. You can use your gifts. You can do it. But if God doesn't work, you are too weak to save. You can present the gospel to someone, but you cannot save them. That's the work of God. So we recognize our weakness. We recognize that and we call out to Christ, please Lord put your power on display and work in this situation because you're great and I'm just a weak vessel before you. So we recognize our weaknesses. Some of you are planning on going into the ministry and you have some very strong gifts and some very strong talents but you're weak. You cannot make a difference. You cannot change lives. You cannot soften hardened hearts. But rejoice and be glad because the grace of Christ is sufficient to work through you. Some of you were sending off today to go overseas. You're weak. You can't make a difference. But rejoice because Christ is sufficient. We're sending Devers off to Oklahoma to make a difference there. And Dusty's very gifted, very talented, but Dusty, you're weak. But rejoice. The grace of Christ is sufficient. You guys go to your jobs. Many of you work at Lockheed. All over the Metroplex, we have jobs. We go out and we work 40 hours a week, maybe 50 hours a week, whatever it is. And you are around people, and they see you in moments where you lose your temper, you're frustrated, you're angry. And you think, how can I make a difference? How can I share the gospel in this work setting? 
and you can't. You're too weak. But rejoice because the grace of Christ is sufficient. Many of you moms stay at home with your kids and you're with your kids all day long and you desire to teach them and to train them in the ways of the Lord. You desire to see them grow in their maturity in Christ. And you know how hard it is just to keep your house clean, right? How in the world can you keep your heart clean? How in the world can you clean the heart of your child? You can't. But rejoice because the grace of Christ is sufficient. And in your moment of weakness, you call out to Him and you trust in the power and the glory of God to be put on display before you. Our only boast is in Christ and in Him alone. Let's keep reading. Second part of verse 9 and verse 10. It says, Therefore... I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, if this is the case, if it's the case that through my weakness, the power of Christ can be put on display and God can be glorified in such a way that nobody looks and says, oh, isn't Paul great? But instead they look and say, isn't God great? Paul says, if that's the case, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities. I boast not in my strengths because that does nothing, but in my weaknesses so that God's power is made perfect. Listen, who likes to be weak? Who likes to be insulted? Does anybody sign up to be persecuted? Does anybody want to go through calamities? Of course not. So what would drive Paul to say something so crazy that he is content with those things? Some translations translate it, he he delights in those things. Why would Paul say such a thing. Verse 10 tells us, for the sake of Christ. That Christ may be glorified. That Christ may be honored. That Christ may receive all the glory. I'm willing to go through all these things so everyone around can see God at work and know that He is real and know that He is just not just some figment of my imagination but he is real and he is powerful and he is loving. Is that your motive? Is that the true state of your heart where you would say, I'm willing to go through anything so that Christ may be honored? Because there's times where I think I can say that, but there's sometimes where I don't know if I can. When I think, when I see a possible situation on the horizon, perhaps it's a sickness, perhaps it's something with my kids, whatever it may be, and I think, oh no, it may be going that way. Can I honestly say, I'm willing to go through it if Christ gets the glory? Sometimes I think I can, sometimes I can't. But may the Lord continue to work on my heart that my desire would be for His glory even at my expense even if it means me being weak, me being insulted, me being persecuted, or me going through calamity. Because sometimes when God doesn't deliver us from our thorn, we get angry. 
and we get bitter and we lose faith. When instead the response should be, if Christ can be put on display, then bring it. I'll do it. Now this this message, this theological truth, this principle that, that our weakness, in our weakness, the power of Christ can be put on display. Does it remind you of anything? Does it remind you of the very core of our faith, the very foundation of our, the message that we live and preach, the gospel? The gospel that tells us, hey, your greatest need more than food, more than water, more than air, your greatest need is to be reconciled to your Creator because you are sinful and you have separated yourself from Him and you have stirred up His wrath. Your greatest need is to be restored to Him. But you're too weak. And you can keep trying. And you can keep working hard. And you can keep trying to do good and trying to be righteous and trying to put off your sin. You can keep trying and trying and trying, but like a hamster spinning in a wheel, you'll go nowhere. You're too weak to even meet your most basic need of salvation. But in your weakness, the power of Christ is put on display. And that when we confess our sins before God and we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, He comes in and saves us. Because of His work on the cross, by absorbing the wrath of God, then defeating death in the resurrection, we can put our faith in Him, and then He begins to work in us. He saves us, something that we never could have done on our own. And He begins to chisel away those sins in our life. And He puts on us the righteousness of Christ, so that when people who knew us before know us now, they see there's a difference. And though for years you may have tried to do better, it never worked, all of a sudden this time, it works. And that's the power of Christ put on display in the gospel. We are too weak to save ourselves, but God did it for us. And for that, we can rejoice. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling with pride or you find yourself constantly giving yourself the glory and giving yourself the credit and you hate being in moments of weakness because you want to portray an image of strength, then you can repent of your pride and confess to the Lord and He will forgive you because of the gospel. And if you constantly let your weakness paralyze you so that you don't step out in faith and follow the Lord and and serve Him or share the gospel or whatever it may be, then you can repent of that weakness. And the Lord is mighty to save and to forgive. No matter where you are on the spectrum, the grace of Christ is greater. He is sufficient. Let's rejoice in Him this morning. This church, we want to make a difference here in this community. We are too weak but rejoice because the grace of Christ is sufficient. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we come to you knowing that we are weak. Lord, we can't even save ourselves. How could we go out and see others saved? We can't, Lord. 
But in the same way that you worked through our, even, even our hard heart, you worked in spite of it and you saved us. You drew us to yourself. You put your power on display in the cross and in the resurrection. We know that you can do that in our life and in everyone around us. And so, Lord, we pray that our driving motivation, our desire would be that you would be glorified. The motivation of our heart would not be our comfort, but your glory. And forgive us when these idols creep in our heart and we begin to worship them instead of desiring you. Lord, be with us. We are weak, but we trust in your power and your majesty. And let us never lose a sense of awe for who you are. Let us always remember that you are good and you are loving and you are powerful and you are mighty to save. Keep reminding our sinful hearts, Lord. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.